I invite you to take them and go with me back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number one, please. Uh, Matthew, chapter number one, is where we'll uh, find our text this morning. And uh, I want us to focus in on uh, this account and, and try to learn uh, from it what we can, uh, as, of course, the uh, the, the uh, Holy Spirit has inspired this for us. Uh, we'll be looking in verse number 18 once again, and we'll read down through verse number 21. Matthew chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save. He shall save his people from their sins. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you may wish to mark the three words that are found as part of the Jesus. And the reason for that is because he shall save. Because he is to be a savior. On the night that Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy, an angel of the Lord appeared to him to reassure him that Mary was still pure despite what he might have initially thought or, or perhaps what he might have initially believed. The Bible says that when he learned the news that Mary was expecting, the Bible says that he, he was minded to put her away. In other words, to assuming that, uh, that a, a, a woman doesn't find herself with child unless she has been with another man, he, he believes this to initially be the case until the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the night in a dream as the angel of the Lord had appeared to Mary some time previously. The angel appears and, he, and, she, and this angel verifies Mary's story, that this child was not the product of another man having been with her, but that this was the work of the Holy Ghost. From the very beginning, I mean from the very beginning of this whole story, when Mary and Joseph learned of the coming of this child, it was clear, it was abundantly clear that he would be unlike any other child to ever be born. He was different. He was very different. No child had ever come into the world this way and for this purpose. And with the circumstances surrounding his birth, we would have to agree that the circumstances surrounding this birth were very, very uncommon and unusual. The Bible reveals to us that his conception was uncommon. The Bible tells us he was born of a virgin as the prophet of old had prophesied. The Bible says in Isaiah 7 and verse number 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The truth of the matter is the, the, the reference to a virgin birth goes all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3 when God talks about the seed of a woman. And so this idea of a virgin birth is, is born in the very, listen, is born in the very early pages of the, of the scripture account. 
The Bible tells us in the same chapter that we've just read from in verse 22. Now all this was done. What was done? The fact that he was virgin born, that he was conceived in the body of a virgin. It was, it was done, the Bible says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. The virgin birth was imperative. It was essential for the fulfillment of God's promised word, but also it was essential for the reason for which he came. You see, someone born like you and I could never save anybody. It was imperative that Jesus be virgin born. So his conception was uncommon, but we would also say that his birthplace was uncommon. Joseph and Mary were residents of Nazareth in Galilee. The distance from Nazareth and Galilee to Bethlehem is, is approximately 93 miles. Mary learned she was expecting a son while she was living in Nazareth, but Jesus' birth was spoken of by the prophet to take place in Bethlehem. So we have a little bit of a problem here. The problem is, is that the prophet said that he would be born in Bethlehem. But this, the parents that have been chosen to raise this child, they live 93 miles north. How are we, how are we going to get this child from, or this, this mama from, 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 Beth, from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem? Uh, when, when, let me, I'm just assuming that when you, those of you that are uh, our moms in here, those of you that are parents in here, when you learned that you were expecting a child, you didn't start looking for a town two or three hours away to, to have him born in. You didn't say, well, you know, let's, 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 let's find some exotic place that we can birth this child. And no, he's probably going to be born. She's probably going to be born in the town that you're living in. And I'm assuming that that was what Mary and Joseph were thinking. And yet God had another plan. B- because God had, a, had, a, had, a, had a, made a promise that he would be born not in the city of Nazareth, but in the city of Bethlehem. The Bible says in Micah 5 and verse number 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And so we've got a real problem. Because this child's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but his parents don't live in Bethlehem. They live 93 miles north. And this is a day before, uh, before automobiles and airplanes and, and, uh, and, and, and travel like you and I might, uh, might be able to do. And so we enter into Luke chapter number two and we discover that hundreds of miles away from even where any of this takes place is a, a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. And he gives a decree that all of the world should be taxed. And in order for you to pay this tax, you, you cannot just mail it in from where you live. No, no, you've got to, you've got to travel to the city in which your family, son of David. So the Bible says, the angel gives that message in Matthew chapter 1. He, he calls him a son of David. And we know where David hails from. So Joseph and Mary, they begin that long 93-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And listen to what? Luke writes for us, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Notice, to be taxed with Mary as a spouse, wife being great with child. And so it was, listen to this, that while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. It just so happened that while they were in Bethlehem, Mary reached the point where she's ready to deliver this child, and it was 
in Bethlehem that this child was delivered, a place, a birthplace that was uncommon, a birthplace that Joseph and Mary never dreamed that they would give birth to this child in Bethlehem, but God had promised it, and so it was. Not only was his conception uncommon and his birthplace uncommon, but his name that is given to him is uncommon. In Matthew chapter number one, in verse 21, the angel says, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. The angel instructed Joseph to name this boy Jesus. The name Jesus means savior. It means deliverer. This child was to receive this name because that is exactly what he would do. The prophet had prophesied that he would, he would be a savior. He would be a deliverer. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse number five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The angel spoke very directly to Joseph that his name be Jesus because he would be a savior just as the scriptures foretold. The angel was not only clear that he would be a savior, the angel was clear what this child had been sent to save people from. That's, that's included for us in this account. But as usual, it is not at all uncommon for mankind to look for a different kind of salvation than the salvation that God intended he receive. The salvation that God intended was to be a spiritual salvation. But man was, man was looking, in the days of Jesus, man was much more interested in a physical salvation than he was looking for a spiritual salvation. And we see several instances in Scripture in which, in which mankind, who was living at the time in which Jesus was walking this earth, in, in which man assumed Christ to be a Savior in something other than what God had sent him to save us from. And I want us to walk through Scripture, and I want us to, to see the confusion that filled the hearts and minds of men as it relates to Jesus being a Savior. The angel was very clear, he was very, uh, he was very pointed. This is what he's going to save mankind from. And yet as we journey through scriptures, we'll find that even some of his closest followers were a little, were a little confused as to why exactly Jesus Christ had come and what exactly he had come to save him from. I want you to consider with me, number one, that the Jewish population living during the time of Christ assumed that he had come to save them from Roman occupation. The Jews living during the time of Christ, they made an assumption that their Messiah, whenever he showed up, that he was going to deliver them from Roman occupation. You say, well, how do you know that that's what they thought? Well, well, hold your place in Matthew chapter number one and go with me to the book of Acts chapter number one. In Acts chapter number one, we find that Jesus has already lived his entire earthly life and ministry. He has already been crucified. He's been buried. He's risen again. And actually what we find here in this account uh, is, is, uh, is, as far as we know, this is the day that Jesus ascended back to heaven. And I want you to consider the question that his disciples ask him in verse number six. Look what it says in Acts one in verse number six. When they therefore were come together, They asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's significant. 
That's significant because of who is asking the question. These are Jesus' followers. These are the ones who have been with him almost from day one. They have heard his messages. They have watched him as he has lived his life. They have beheld him as he's done many miracles. They, uh, they, they watched as he was uh, falsely accused and as he was arrested and as he was beaten. And then as he was eventually placed upon that cross, they watched as his body was placed in the ground. And as he rose from the dead, they, they'd heard every message that he would ever deliver. And on the day, on the day in which he's ready to ascend back to heaven, they're the ones asking the question, okay, now is it time? Is now the time that you're going to restore again the kingdom? This question comes from the apostles or the disciples on the day he ascended back to heaven after fulfilling his purpose and earthly ministry obligations. And so there must be, a, there must be an element in which this was the pervasive thought among all of the Jews. That this Messiah was going to come. And it's a good thing that he's arrived because we're under Roman occupation. And it's about time that God sends somebody here to this earth to help us so that he can restore again the kingdom to Israel. Jesus gently reminded his followers on that day that that was not to be their primary concern. They were caught up in this idea of, uh, of his kingdom restored. And Jesus, he, he gently reminds them. He says, that's, that's, not why, that's not why I came the first time. I did not come to provide a physical salvation, but rather I've come to provide a spiritual salvation. And in verse number one, he says, here's your primary concern. He says, get your mind off of a kingdom restored to Israel and get your mind on a, on a, on a group of people being restored to the kingdom of God, being reunited with me. And he says in Acts 1, one in verse number eight, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying, forget about the kingdom being restored to Israel and actually go into all of the world and preach my gospel. Tell people what I've done. Tell people why I came, because that's a whole lot more important than being set free from Roman occupation. The question they asked didn't completely come out of left field. If we are students of Scripture, we'll know that there was a reason why the Jews clung to the idea of a Savior who would restore again the kingdom. You see, there are multiple Old Testament prophecies that teach this. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." Skipping down to verse number seven, the Bible says of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. Henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Prophet Jeremiah spoke Similarly, he said in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in all the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. And that familiar prophecy that came from Micah, about the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. Listen to what Micah says. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. At the time of his birth, the Jews had lost their sovereignty and they dwelt under Roman occupation. 
his claim to be Messiah and Savior, coupled with these clear words found in Scripture, led many of the Jews to believe that he would, he would come to throw off the shackles of Roman bondage and restore again the kingdom to Israel. And the Jews, listen, the Jews adopted the approach that anyone who didn't do this or anyone who couldn't do this couldn't possibly be a fit for their Messiah and their Savior. After all, after all, didn't Isaiah say that he would be a ruler, that he would be a king? Didn't Jeremiah say these things? Didn't Micah say that he would be a ruler in Israel, and if you're, not, if you're not capable, if you're not able to rule, if you're not able to set up an earthly kingdom, well, then you're not our Messiah. And they missed it. They missed it altogether. Can I just help you understand to this day, 2,000 years removed, did you know that the vast majority of Jews are still waiting? They're still waiting for someone to come again and restore again the kingdom of Israel. And can I just help you to understand, that day is coming. Jesus will come. But what they missed, they missed, they missed that there would be two advents. There would be his first coming. And by the way, his first coming would be the most important coming. Because it assures that you and I can have a part in his second coming. And don't, don't miss this. Don't miss what so many, so many people in our world have missed. Jesus is coming again. He is going to restore again the kingdom to Israel. But listen, a kingdom restored to Israel is no good unless there can be a group of people to which God can dwell with them for all of eternity. That's what his first coming was for. You see, listen, the problem, the problem of Roman occupation is not nearly as big of a problem as the occupation that dwells in our hearts as sinful men and women. You see, the Roman occupation is one thing the vast majority of people live under the bondage of occupation to sin and wickedness. And Jesus came to deal with that first. And so we discover in our text the Jewish population assumed he came to save them from Roman occupation. But I want you to notice the second, the second misunderstanding, and that is this, that the sick and diseased assumed he came to save them from sickness. Would you go with me, or Matthew chapter 1, go with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're fairly early into the days of Christ's public ministry. And notice what he's doing early on. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had, had the palsy, and he healed them. And he healed them. I think to myself that this text reveals the early days of Jesus' ministry, and notice that it featured him traveling all over Galilee doing a few things. Number one, it, it featured him going and teaching and preaching. You know, I read that this week, and as I was preparing for this message, I thought, wow, what an honor. What an honor that I get to, with my life, do the same thing that Jesus used his life to do. Some of you, some of you in here, you have a teaching ministry in this church. You're responsible to do some teaching. What an honor. What an honor that you get to spend some of your life doing what Jesus spent his life doing. But that's not all that he did. The Bible says not only did he go throughout all Galilee teaching and preaching the gospel, but he also went healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. I have to tell you, I wish I could do that. I wish 
I wish that I could go into the hospitals and into the nursing homes and into the hospice facilities and lay hands on those dear people and, and, and raise them up from their bed of affliction. I wish I could do it. I'm not able to. The Bible says that because he had this power, that power led him to great fame and led him to many followers. The book of Matthew is full of Jesus healing people from their sickness and diseases. Matthew 8 and 9, in those two chapters, we find one after another. We don't have time to look at them, but I would encourage you maybe to mark those two chapters in your Bible. Maybe spend some time uh, this week reading them. And you'll find that one after another, Jesus was confronted uh, with, with major, major problems and issues. And in every single one, Jesus did what was necessary. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, that Jesus healed a leper. Leprosy in that day was perhaps the most dreaded disease of all. And when Jesus was confronted with a man that had leprosy, Jesus healed him. It was no problem for him. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, the Bible tells us that Jesus healed the servant of a centurion or of a Roman soldier. Now think about that for a moment. The very people that the Jews thought Jesus was there to deliver them from, to liberate them from, Jesus is helping them. And not just them, but he's helping their own servants. It's pretty remarkable, the love and compassion he had for all men. In Matthew 8, verses 14 and 15, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. In Matthew 9, verses 2 to 7, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed. In Matthew 9, verses 18 to 25, Jesus enters into a home of a young girl who's actually died. The mourners have gathered around. They're all mourning. Jesus says to them, hey, listen, she's just asleep. The Bible says that they laughed him to scorn. He had them put out of the house, and he spoke to the girl, and immediately she rose from the dead. The Bible tells us in, in, in Matthew 9, verses 27 to 33, that Jesus healed a blind man and that Jesus healed a mute individual, someone who could not speak, they could not form the words. These two chapters feature just a small sample of what Jesus did while he was here when confronted with sickness and disease. These are m remarkable miracles leading to growing fame, wonder, and amazement. But listen, this is not why Jesus came. And this is not what he came to save us from. Many are quick to turn to Jesus, aren't they? They're too quick to turn to God for physical healing as they're familiar with some of these stories, but they give him very little time or interest in any other area of their lives. I just want you to know something. The sin problem is a much greater problem than your physical ailment. It's hard for us to understand that because we're, 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 we're physical beings and the physical seems to outweigh every other issue. But let's just be reminded this morning that there is no greater problem that exists among men than the problem of sin. We talk about cancer and we all hate it and we'd love to see it eradicated and we talk about Alzheimer's and dementia and we hate it and we'd love to see it eradicated and we hate heart disease and heart failure and other issues and other problems. But I just want you to know something. The greatest problem that any of us have is not those problems. Jesus had power over those problems and he used that power to show us that he was who he claimed to be. But listen, he did not come to heal mankind of sickness and disease. He came to give us a much greater healing than that. There was confusion. We see the Jewish population assumed that he was there to deliver them from Roman occupation. The sick and diseased assumed he came to save them from sickness. And can I say number three, that the disciples themselves assumed that he came to save them from insignificance. Would you go with me to Matthew chapter 20? 
Matthew chapter number 20 features a very unusual story. The Bible tells us in verse 20 of Matthew 20, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? In other words, he's asking, What do you want? What do you want from me? Notice her answer. She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. There's, there's that reference to kingdom again. It's very likely that James and John's mother believed just like they did and believed like all the other Jews did at that point in time. Okay, if you're the Messiah, that's who you're claiming to be. Well, then you're going to restore again the kingdom to Israel in this lifetime. And she's one step ahead. She's going to him and she says, I have a question for you. I have a request to make of you. And he says, what do you want? And she said, would you, would you make it possible that when you come into your kingdom, my one son sits on your right hand and my other son sits on your left hand? I don't know if you're a parent, but I've discovered that children like to vie for seats well in advance of things. Have you noticed that? Maybe we're going to the vehicle. I'm calling the front seat. Or perhaps we're going to a restaurant. I'm sitting by mom. Why, why do no kids ever want to sit by dad? I've never been able to understand that. I want to sit by mom. Or maybe I want to sit by grandma. In, in some respects, on a, very, on a very basic level, that's what's happening here. They're, in, in, their, in, their, in her mind, we're heading towards the kingdom. I can see it. There, there, there it is. And I, I, want, I want my two boys, I want one to sit on the right hand and one to sit on the left hand. Now, now notice verse 24. And when the ten, so we have 12 disciples, the mother of two of them said, would you do this? When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Now, what do you think is going on here? Do, do you think that this is, this is indignation? Well, how dare you ask such a thing? You know what I think this is? I think this is, man, we wish we would have thought of that before you. I really do. I think that this is sort of a, an almost, it's almost a missed opportunity. What makes you think that you can sit on his right hand and you can sit on, well, if you're sitting on his right hand and you're sitting on his left hand, well, where does that put us? I just, just happen to believe that his disciples the vast majority of them who were Galileans, they were, concerned un, they were considered unlearned and ignorant. I, I believe that uh, a significant portion of them were, were, were just simply fishermen by trade. And it, it almost seems as if that at points, at points they viewed Christ as the one who would save or deliver them from insignificance in life. And that by being close to him, at some point, He's going to stand up, and he's going to lead, and he's going to rule, and he's going to have a kingdom. And we knew him first. We knew him before he got popular. We started, we gave up and followed, we gave up all and followed him before anybody was willing to do so. That's going to count for something when he comes into his kingdom, isn't it? Can't you just see it? I'm a fisherman now, one of these days. One of these days, I'm going to be sitting in a throne room. One of these days, I'm going to be ruling over people 
Oh, oh, we're, we're, we're considered unlearned and unignorant men, and ignorant men right now. But one of these days, oh, one of these days, we're going to have a seat of authority over the learned and over the wise and over the intellectuals. As we live this life, we're periodically reminded of how quickly the sands of time slip through our hands and how little time we might have to make a difference or impact on this world. Some of you, some of you, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm this old. And from what I can tell, I don't know that I've made a significant impact on this world. We all fear, don't we? We fear dying and being forgotten. Us being put in the ground and everyone just sort of going back to normal life and forgetting about us. And don't we, on, a, on some type of level, don't we all have some desire for significance, for relevance? to be known, to make an impact, for many people to know our name, for people to care. The disciples were not immune to this. Our lives seem to be so short, there's never enough time to do all that we want to do, all that we could do, or all that we should do. Most people at one time or another long to become someone or to make something great out of their lives, to be remembered long after we're gone. It's important to note that our text indicates that he did not come to provide a physical, earthly salvation, though that is what man throughout Scripture is typically looking for first. Listen, throwing off the bondage of Roman occupation, healing a man or woman of a sickness or disease, or elevating a man to a position of significance or prominence. Listen, all of those are are, are fine in their place. But listen, the eternal God did not become man to address the physical concerns of your 80 or so years of living down here on this earth. In in other words, listen, the, the eternal God who sits in the heavens wasn't sitting in heaven saying, you know, it's a real shame that those people are sick. Let me become man to save them from their sickness. The eternal God sitting in heaven isn't sitting there looking down and saying, you know, it's a real shame that those people, they're going to live all those years and never really have a whole lot of significance. Let me see if I can do something to change that. It's not what this is about. No, the the scriptures indicate you'd call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Today, people look to the Lord for salvation from financial ruin and financial problems. They look to the Lord to save them from relationship issues. They look to the Lord for career intervention. They look to the Lord for a host of other things. They pray to him for physical safety, but give little thought to the actual reason why he came. The announcement from the angel that Joseph reveals just what it was that he came to save us from. Fourthly and finally, Jesus came to save people from their sins. Can I say that as we consider this in conclusion, we must understand that sin's presence is woven throughout everything. The presence of sin, listen, is everywhere in this world. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse number 20, for there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That man doesn't exist. Look around you this morning. We're all cleaned up. It's, it's Christmas Eve, Sunday morning. We've done our best to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can. But you know what Solomon wrote about you? And you know what he wrote about me? There's not a just man among us. There's not a, there's not a single one of us that lives on this earth without sin. They don't exist. 
The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22 says this, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. And 1 John 1.8 says it even this way, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know what? If you're here today and you say, I'm a pretty good person, you know what you've done? In God's eyes, you've, you've lied to yourself because you're not a good person and neither am I. No, there, there's not a single one of us who are good. We're all sinners. The Bible is clear. And the presence of sin is woven into every area of our lives. Notice, secondly, we discover the problem with sin is that sin's penalty is waiting for every man. Sin's presence is a problem, isn't it? It's frustrating that we have to live in a sin-cursed earth. The sins of others bring problems into our lives as well as our own sins. But listen, understand this. There's a penalty that is waiting for every man. The Bible says in Romans 6 and verse number 23, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18 and verse number four, behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God assured Adam that death would be the consequence for eating the forbidden fruit. You know the story, Adam did eat that fruit. And immediately he felt shame over his nakedness for the first time in his life. His innocence died in that moment. He and his wife attempted to cover themselves up. The Bible says that they took some fig leaves and they sewed together some aprons that they made for themselves, but God came to them and God demanded a greater covering than this. So God made them coats of skins. Something else died that day, an innocent animal. He died to cover man's nakedness. Death is the clearly taught and observed penalty for sin. Look around you this morning. How many people do you see in this room who will someday die? The answer is all of us. Likely on your drive from your home to this church, you probably drove past a funeral home. And if you didn't drive past a funeral home, you probably drove past a cemetery. Say, was that, is that the penalty for sin? Sort of. Sort of. But the Bible warns of two deaths. There is a physical death and there is a spiritual death. Remember, as human beings, we tend to focus only on the physical. So when we think about the penalty for sin, we think, well, yes, yeah, someday my body's gonna lay in a casket like that. Someday my family's going to be picking out which cemetery I'm gonna be buried in. Someday my, uh, my family is going to be coming into a funeral home uh, to pay their last respects to me. And that's all that we think about. But listen, the Bible tells us there's not just one death, there's two deaths. There's also a spiritual death. It's called the second death. And the Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse number eight, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And some of you are so worried about being put in the ground and being there for the rest of eternity. And what you ought to be worried about is you ought to be worried about being cast into a lake of fire where you'll suffer for all of eternity. That's what really matters. And that's, by the way, that's what Jesus came to save us from. 
Not to, not to save us from having to go to a funeral some, home someday. Not to save us from having to be put into a box someday and lowered into the ground. No, Jesus came. He died. His life was all about saving us from our sins so that we would not have to spend eternity in hell or the lake of fire. God did not come to, God did not become a man to save you from death by heart attack, by cancer, by car accident or natural causes. He came to save you from death by lake of fire. And just as every man will die a physical death someday, every man will suffer a second death someday as well, unless, unless he has a savior. Thirdly and finally, sin's payment was made for all men by Jesus Christ. This child is being spoken about in Matthew chapter one. He's not even born yet. The angel says, here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's coming to save us from. This child would grow up. He would live a sinless life. And the Bible says in Romans 5, verses 6 and 7 and 8, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there seems to be a contradiction in Scripture. The contradiction is this, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But then we consider what the Bible says about Jesus, that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, then why did he die? If the wages of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned, well, then why would he have to die? You've just read the answer. You see, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for yours. And he died for mine. The payment has already been made. Say, so what must I do to be saved? Bible is clear. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Likely you have found yourself in a mess at some point or another in life, and in that moment you cried out, Dear God, save me. Dear God, help me. Dear God, deliver me. Dear God, help me to find another job. Help my loved one to be okay. Dear God, help me as I'm in this vehicle and it seems to be careening out of control. Dear God, help me. Save me. And maybe he has. Maybe he has provided another job for you. Maybe he's helped you with financial issues. I don't know what the matter is. Maybe God has been there for you in that moment. But I want to remind you, that's not what he's come to save you from. Will there be someone here today who will join the many hundreds of us in here who have already done this? Who have come to the point where we've understood we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And we will simply... We'll simply cry out to him, dear God, save me from my sins. And find in that moment a much better healing, a much better saving than any physical healing or saving could ever bring. That's why he came. He shall save his people from their sins.